Welcome to our mindfulness podcast. Each week or so, we will have a different podcast, different speakers, different chants, different Dharma talks. But mindfulness practice in Buddhism helps us focus and helps us be aware. And this program will consist of many different ways of meditating. We usually begin with bowing or gasho, then we prepare to sit, and we will sit for approximately 10 minutes. And then we will either stand and walk for another five minutes to kind of get blood into our legs again and and, uh, relax our muscles. And then we'll sit for another 10 approximately. And then we will chant, which is another form of meditation. Uh, We focus on the characters and we pronounce the sounds as a group. And it's a kind of a ritual of oneness. And then after that, we'll have a short Dharma talk of about five to 10 minutes. And then we'll close with Gasho. And this also includes offering incense. We offer incense, but you could also light the incense before the service starts. And this is kind of the program uh, of how our meditation services proceed. And so we will be getting underway today uh, with our program. Thank you very much. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, It's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply. Let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side to find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world. Waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most, in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho and bow. Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts. Return to your seat or cushion. Sitting in this way, we might wonder what purpose we are achieving. Actually, there is no specific purpose. I think it's really to make us aware of what sitting is, what breathing is, standing is. What are these simple activities that we do most of the time without thinking about them at all? We'll begin our second sitting at the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. We will begin uh, sutra chanting. Sutra chanting is actually a portion of a sutra that we will chant. Uh, most sutras are far too long to be able to chant in one sitting. So for us, uh, we're usually chanting a verse out of a longer narrative or prose. And that's why uh, each line consists of perhaps four or five or seven characters. When we chant, we read from left to right, just like in English, and we move down the first column, and then we move to the second column, and so on. Open circles uh, represent bells uh, for the chant leader to ring. So we always begin a sutra chant with two bells. Whenever we change a section, we use one bell to kind of signal that we're changing uh, from one section to another. And then when you end a sutra chant, you always end with three bells. Each syllable here is written in Romanized characters, English characters, and each syllable here represents a kanji, a Chinese character, and it's written phonetically. It's the sound of the character. The vowels have the same pronunciation independent of location or their neighbor. So this is different from English. And the vowel sounds, uh, I've been told, resemble those in Spanish. So we have A, E, I, O, and U. And they're pronounced A, E, E, O, and U. And then uh, you'll see uh, italicized lines. Uh, those are leader lines that I chant alone. And you will also see underlines under some of the characters. And that means that rather than each character getting a single beat, an underlying character will get a beat and a half. And to kind of make up that little extra time, the next character in line will only get a half beat. And what you do is you don't really concern yourself too much about the meaning of what's being chanted. This isn't flashcards. We're not trying to learn something. This is a ritual. And so we chant together as a feeling of oneness. Don't worry too much about how you're doing. Be aware and mindful of each character. Uh, this is a form of meditation. Uh, rather than silent meditation, we're meditating through sound. So, you know, you see the character, you say it, you forget about it, you move on, and you say the next character. And over time, it becomes effortless, and you'll begin to memorize it uh, without realizing it. We will now chant the Junidai found on page 49. Junidai or 12 verses of reverence, originated in the Mahayana tradition of India during the time of the Pure Land Master Nagarjuna, around 150 CE. The verses were later translated into the Chinese text that we chant today. Like the larger Sutra and the Amida Sutra, the text of Junidai describes the spiritual qualities of Amida and the Pure Land using poetic language. Please read the translation of the Junidai found on page 51, which describes in detail what the 12 verses of reverence actually means. We will now chant the Junidai. Keshu Tenin Amida 
Siddhartha Gautama lived the life of a sheltered and pampered royal. He was a prince in line for his father's crown. One day he ventured out beyond the castle walls, and for the first time he saw the realities of life, growing old, becoming sick, and dying. For the first time, he realized that his royal lineage would not protect him from these events. During that same adventure outside the castle, he met a monk. This monk was radiant and unconcerned about the future. He seemed to have found a way of living beyond the extremes of life and death. This story is called The Four Gates. It is this last gate with the monk that awakened a latent desire within Prince Siddhartha. It was a wish to seek a life of spiritual meaning rather than one of materialism. Soon after this encounter, at age 29, Siddhartha cut his hair, removed his jewelry, donned the saffron robes of an ascetic, and left the castle in search of a teacher. After six years of continuous practice, Siddhartha realized enlightenment at age 35. He became known as the Buddha, someone who was awoken from the long dark night of delusion and suffering. 
For the next 45 years until his death at 80, the Buddha taught others, and the Sangha grew to perhaps 10,000 monks. This is a condensed biography of the Buddha. However, it only tells half the story. There are actually two Enlightenment events in the Buddha's life, the first one under the Bodhi tree at 35, and the second one under the twin Sala trees at age 80. It seems these two events have been merged into one. I would like to discuss the Buddha's enlightenment as occurring in two parts, with different qualities. This is called the two Nirvana theory. We celebrate two separate holidays for these two separate events. The first is called Bodhi Day, celebrated on December 8th, and the second is called Nirvana Day, celebrated on February 15th. The names of these two holidays also add to the confusion. It might be more accurate to refer to them as Nirvana Day and Pari Nirvana Day. Nirvana Day celebrates the Buddha's initial enlightenment, and Pari Nirvana Day celebrates the Buddha's complete enlightenment just prior to his death. This two-fold structure of enlightenment can also be seen in the 48 vows of the larger sutra. There are 48 vows, and they all share the same basic structure. Basically, the Buddha says, If when I attain Buddhahood, if X, Y, and Z doesn't happen, then may I not attain perfect enlightenment. So in each vow, he talks about enlightenment in two stages. After I attain initial awakening, if all beings who hear my name do not become awakened, then I will not attain perfect enlightenment. This initial enlightenment is called enlightenment with remainder, while complete enlightenment is called enlightenment without remainder. What is this remainder? It is the remainder of clinging. While the self still exists, clinging still exists, even for the Buddha. In other words, the triple fires of ignorance, greed, and anger have been extinguished, but the fuel is still there. It still remains. This fuel and fire is represented metaphorically as the demon Mara. Scholar Hajime Nakamura has found that, quote, certain ancient texts say that Gautama was assailed by the temptations of Mara after his initial enlightenment, but later Buddhists, having deified Gautama, placed the subjugation of Mara before enlightenment to give his biography more drama. Mara's continued activities can also be seen in a couplet from the Sambutsuge. If you go to Stanza number six, the first two lines, we chant Mu Myo Yokunu, Sei Son Yomu. And this often gets translated as ignorance, greed, and anger in the world honored one does not last long. So rather than saying it no longer exists, they use the phrase does not last. So this is kind of telling. The Buddha may still have moments of ignorance, greed, and anger, but what makes him a Buddha after realizing initial enlightenment is that they no longer last long. He sees them, and then he lets them go. So it's not that they vanished, but they no longer have an effect on him. In other words, while Mara's attacks still continue, their effects no longer last. The fuel exists, but the fire does not. Nakamura concurs, stating that, quote, People of that time regarded Mara's temptations as continuing even after the initial enlightenment. I consider this to be of great importance. The human being named Gotama did not, upon enlightenment, become a completely different kind of human being, a perfect being impervious to harm. 
Even after becoming a Buddha, he still possessed weaknesses and could be pursued and tempted by Mara, end quote. We often hear that nirvana means blowing out the fire. This is actually a metaphor that has been interpreted too literally. In ancient India, it was understood that even after a fire has been blown out, a latent fire still exists due to the remaining fuel of the candle. Our fuel also still exists until we die. So the best we can do in the here and now is make a wish and blow out the candle while still smoldering. Thank you very much. Namo Amidabits, Namandabits, Namandabits. Today's program was presented and produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church. This program is copyright 2022 by the Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. All rights reserved.